Hey, everybody. Before we start the show, I wanted to tell you about our sponsor for this episode. Once again, today's episode is sponsored by Trailer Bits. Trailer Bits is a cybersecurity firm spending its time making sure you're writing smart, secure, and efficient code. We've previously talked about some of their tooling that they use, such as Slither, uh, the conferences they put on for to educate people, as well as the blogs they put out to make sure that you're up to date on what's currently working, how to use Slither products, and um, what to look out for when you're trying to build products. Today's uh, episode, we want to tell you about uh, a new feature that they're building, which will be releasing in the next coming weeks, called Critic. That's C-R-Y-T-I-C. Uh, Critic is going to be a continuous assurance for smart contracts, and that is a, a GitHub integration. Every time you deploy or a commit to a GitHub repo that has smart contracts in it, uh, Critic will run a suite of security analysis tools so you get immediate security feedback. That means that as you're doing your development, you're getting immediate feedback without having to set up anything. You just commit your contract as you're current, doing current developments and you'll get uh, results without having to set anything up. That's a big boon from my experience in doing smart contract development because it's really hard to figure out how to set up all of the different smart contract analysis tools uh, and make sure that your environment's set up properly. Uh, it's much better to just integrate something into your GitHub commit and get immediate results. If you're interested in this, uh, which you should be if you're doing smart contract development, go to critic.io. That's C-R-Y-T-I-C.io. Enjoy the show. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 43 of Hashing It Out. As always, I am Dr. Corey Petty, your host, with my co-host, Colin Couchet. Say howdy, everybody, Colin. Howdy, everybody, Colin. Ooh, with some spunk. You're actually getting Goddamn spunky right, with spunk. it now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, today, uh, we're talking again with Kadena as a returning guest from us. Uh, we have Emily and Stuart with us from Kadena. Um, we really are kind of fans of the, the concept of the project you're doing and, and are interested in what, and how it's and how it's panning out. So... I guess without further ado, uh, Stuart, Emily, can you give us a quick, quick introduction as to um, how you got involved in the space and what your role is at Kadena and what Kadena is? Sure, I'll start. Uh, my name is Stuart Popejoy. Uh, it's great to be back on Hashing It Out with you guys. I really enjoyed the discussion last time and looking forward to talking more. Um, I'm uh, a co-founder of Kadena. Uh, we um, founded in 2016 with a private blockchain solution and uh, open sourced our smart contract language and uh, later that year. Uh, and recently we launched the testnet of our uh, public uh, multi-chain scalable uh, level one blockchain chain web, which also runs the PAC smart contract language. So uh, we're having a lot of fun here and that's what we're doing. Great. I guess I'll go next. Uh, my name is Emily Fillmore. I am the lead maintainer of the Pact Smart Contract Language. 
and I've been an engineer with Cadena for the past, uh, what, eight or nine months, I think. Uh, and I, I am a, a sort of chartered mathematician here working on the, uh, uh, the core language as well as the formal verification bits. Well, that's awesome. So, uh, Stuart, I believe we kind of went over your background before you came mostly from, I believe, FinTech. Is that correct? Uh, you were talking, you were massively scalable, distributed uh, financial transaction systems was kind of your background. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so building a, a high volume equity trading system for JP Morgan, uh, that amongst other things included a, uh, a, a user programmable language for uh, writing uh, uh, benchmark algorithms. Mm -hmm. um, that informs some of the stuff we did in Pact. Um, and before that, I had been working more in the kind of boutique software space, building trading software, uh, building exchange backbones. And yeah, these are all high-frequency systems. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of makes sense why you would get on, onto the Cadena side, of why you would have the insights you did with regard to Cadena's. Uh, is it Cadena? Not, it's not Cadena. It's not Cadena. It's Cadena. Okay. Cadena's... Yeah, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's one of those ambiguous pronunciations um, based off the, the way it looks. Um, so uh, you've uh, you've got a. Uh, it makes sense why you you would pursue this project uh, considering your experience. Uh, Emily, what got you into the space? What um what is your background? How did you get into the form of verification side? Uh, why are you uh, so good at math? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, I actually got my start in the financial industry. Uh, so I, I got my start uh, right out of college in Utah as an analyst for Goldman Sachs. And I slowly transitioned into the model verification and validation space, uh, working for the Boston Consulting Group here in uh, New York City, and eventually fell in love with functional programming, where I gravitated toward Haskell as the you know best application of my experiences, which just happened to naturally sit in this uh, sort of golden mean between uh, logic programming where formal verification sits and uh, the financial industry, which you know, seems to make use of it uh, uh, internally, at least to a, a reasonable enough degree to get uh, a job. Uh, and then I, I came to Cadena because I was very interested in their their tech stack, as well as some of the people that were here, like Stuart and uh, uh, one of our, uh, is it the director of engineering, Doug Beardsley, who is a, a huge name in the Haskell space. And like, here we are now. <laughs> that, that's a nice transition, I think, into, uh, I guess, the, maybe one of the better ways to introduce this whole concept is what is formal verification and how do languages, uh, like, how is a language choice involved with the ability to do so? It's an interesting question. Um, now, I think it depends on how you define formal verification, because uh, there are there's there's a lot of sort of ambiguity in the term of formal, for one, and then verification meaning you know what methods are you actually applying to uh, whatever it is that you're trying to formally verify that actually makes it you know quote verified. Uh, and I think you can split this into a few different levels of. Uh, what it means to be verified. And there's some people that think that you know, you, if you have a, a spec which says my program is supposed to do this for you know whatever it is, whether it's a program or a, a distributed system or something, if, if my thing is supposed to work this way, then if you write a program, then it's supposed to work as we say it does. Uh, and then there's another level which says, 
not only do you have to have a, a sort of specification for behavior, but you also have to show that uh, through some means, whether it's bouncing off of a theorem prover or, um, you know, formally specifying in terms of uh, a semantic, uh, how your program is supposed to work and, and then verifying it via those provers. And then there's further another uh, section of people who believe that you can only quote, formally verify something if you have a mathematically uh, proven semantic for which you can fully specify the language in terms of a theorem prover and then execute each one of those proofs in terms of the theorem prover uh, to show that the, the semantics are correct. And then you derive your entire language from that, that specification instead of proofs. So the language has a lot to do with whether or not you're even capable of doing it. And, and what is, what is, how is PACT different in such a way that um, you're able to then say you can formally verify things? Right. So this is a, a subtle point about programming languages in general. Uh, you can't mathematically prove or verify non-determinism. You can only verify the parts of your language which are total, what we call total in the space. And by total, we mean they reduce to a single value, which is a, a concrete value. Um, and Turing completeness and Turing completeness have a lot to do with this. Uh, so Turing complete languages are languages which can admit non-deterministic behaviors at the boundaries of the program. So for instance, recursing indefinitely or talking over a network or uh, you know a whole bunch of other types of behaviors like that, which deal with not exactly concrete values, but like uh, operations that can sort of indefinitely, you know, hang or throw errors, mm -hmm. which uh, you, your programs can't really handle uh, unless you have like a, a way of handling exceptions. Whereas Turing incomplete refers to uh, only those programs which terminate to a single value. Right. So when you model uh, the mathematical semantics of this, there's no real, uh, I guess, principled way of handling those non-deterministic values, which means that you can only ever verify the behavior of those programs which actually terminate. Right. Mm -hmm. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Actually, I don't think I quite follow that. So actually, could you just say that one more time <laughs> for me? Because what, what, what I heard was, is that the difference between your definition of the difference between Turing incomplete and Turing complete is that Turing incomplete doesn't doesn't necessarily have to term. Well, this is my actually this is more my understanding of it. Maybe you can help me. I have a computer science background, but like the way you said it didn't quite seem to jive with how I normally right. say it. And that Turing incomplete is kind of like you don't it, it's it, you know it's going to terminate because you're operating on basically finite boundaries. Is you can't have infinite for loops because there's not an infinite amount of data. You can't have, it's not a long infinite tape of ticker tape of, of, of information even possible within the system. And so you know eventually it's going to terminate. So what am I missing there? And why do you make this, am I, did I misunderstand what you said or? Right, no, that's that's a, a sort of meta argument though. That says in the real world, our programs will always terminate because there's a finite amount of data. But when you specify you know, this stuff in terms of uh, mathematical properties. You don't consider the real world just does admitting or admitting like, you know, infinite boundaries and infinite tapes and infinite programs, right? So to say something is Turing complete is to say that in this sort of idealized world, you have the ability to model 
a tape which is infinite, which will run infinitely. And that's it. Okay. Yeah. It's just like the way so, the machine actually works means that you don't have something that can recurse or last forever within like the right. functions. Who cares about the ticker tape? You can always have infinite ticker tape, but like like infinite loops definitely means that it's a it, it's it's not a Turing incomplete language. Right. Yes, and so does recursion and and, like and the well, ability to just... append data to a particular so, array itself would allow you to do that. So if you could actually append a piece of data to the array in the middle of a loop, then you've basically extended the length of the loop unless that loop has a terminator, which is dependent on, you know, I mean, it's like these kind of things allow you to extend the length of the tape. And that kind of extension ability is what I understood would cause Turing completeness. Now, um, from what I understand from PACS, there's, there's, it's, it's basically you're operating on knowns and only knowns, and you can't have loops which traverse infinitely or over, over a uh, un, indeterminable length of, of data, and you can't have calls which uh, functions which call themselves. And so uh, that's just based off our conversation with uh, Stuart before. Um, right, right. Is that an accurate assessment of what you guys are doing there? Yeah. That's that's fairly accurate. Although there was a point here, which I think is a an interesting one, just for your own understanding of of Turing completeness versus incompleteness. Recursion doesn't mean that you have the potential to uh, have non-terminating recursion. You can have things which are recursive which terminate. You just have to provide proof at each step that the arguments are are decreasing to the point where they get to you know one single step and then that single step is like the final step in your your recursion that is exceptionally interesting to me so is there there's an ability to actually do that where you can actually say i could prove for all given inputs that this particular recursive uh, function will not add information to its steps and will always reduce to zero right and that's 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 sort of bearing on on what we're going to get to eventually which is witnesses to what we call accessibility where we can actually reach the code that we're going to get to uh, and provide you know, proofs at each step that we, we can continually get there, uh, provides proof that our programs will terminate. So these witnesses to termination are the things that, that define whether something is actually Turing incomplete versus uh, actually Turing complete, right? If you're, you're Turing complete, you don't have a witness to termination mm -hmm. at all. One thing I want to, I want to just jump in here and say too is that um, I think one thing we're getting at, which is an interesting subtle point on PACT, is that PACT's approach to Turing incompleteness was motivated before we sought to admit the entire the idea. We didn't even know that we'd be able to admit the entire language to formal verification. Um, that was something that kind of arrived based on our design decisions. And so one of the things Emily is discussing there is the fact that you can have recursion. Uh, you know, there are there are ways to admit recursion that make for a well-behaved program that terminates. Um, one of the reasons why PACT is even more strict than that is simply because my experience in uh, in, in designing languages for everybody, not just programmers, is that non-programmers well programmers screw up recursion all the time yeah. It's, yeah it's the number one source of bugs and and they're the hardest bugs to track down as well so um so the idea there is that pact in addition to you know 
having this nice feature of being formally verifiable, wants to make it very hard for a programmer to make even trivial bugs of the nature where you're, you know, what are you trying to get done? Do you really want to call a function on itself? Because if you subtly change state in that mode, it's it's very hard to load that into your brain. Whereas something simpler where you're operating over a list, which is something that PACT encourages, allows you to kind of move the problem into data, which, you know, you see this, this is more a general programming thing, but you see this all over, for instance, in game programming, where they try to move out of intense logic and try to express as many things as they can in kind of arrays of data for many reasons. And this, we found this with PAC2, that you actually get better performance out of your system. A lot of these same uh, things that seem austere on the, on the face of it, uh, in the case of PAC, allow us to inline code um, aggressively. Uh, we can cut that out, don't worry. <laughs> Give it a couple seconds. Okay. So in the case of PAC, this kind of thing allows us to, you know, inline code aggressively. Uh, and, uh, you know, and th there's just, there's a myriad amount of benefits that come out of this. And formal verification uh, emerged quickly as something that, you know, was that we wanted to explore. And then it was very fruitful. Um, so I, I think this is uh, the, the conversation about recursion. The larger conversation about recursion is going to be very interesting if we get a chance to touch on some of the other efforts and formal verification in blockchain outside yeah. of PAC. And we've got plenty of time to kind of get into that. But before we do that, let's let's you brought up something that is interesting to me. And that's the idea that I write an algorithm and I have personal expectations of how this algorithm not only works, but also performs. Um, I have never used a formally verified language. I'm going to lay that out there. I don't know of very many. It's not something that comes up in my, you know, in my day to day. It's not something I do. I'm going to interact with PAC. PAC, how do I write? Let's just start with the very basics. How do I write from a user experience perspective a piece of code and tell the system I really want it to do this, and it can actually verify that? Is there is that the, missing the intent of what you're saying, or is that no. something you can actually do? What does that that's, look like? That's precisely the intent of the system, and uh, and I think the thing that's going to make PACT unique is not going to be so much its formal properties, although they are, you know, Emily can talk more about PAC, some of PAC's interesting formal properties, but um, it's the fact that PAC's shape makes this stuff so tractable. Um, the easiest way to do it is go to pac.cadena.io and start using our web REPL. And there's an example on there um, uh, that, um, I don't know if we wanted to share a screen, but um, I just want to make sure I know the name of the example contract there this is audio only anyway <laughs> oh okay yeah so anyways on there there's an example contract that uh um is i think it's called formal verification or it's got something like that in its title and what it shows you it's a single function smart contract uh oh no it's the one that comes up when you go to so you just go to pack.cadena it's the first one to come up um and uh there's a before the actual code of the function which is this uh, absolute value function that's got this really weird bug in it um that basically is a quadratic equation based on the input and when that when you solve that to negative one or when you solve that to some random number that's in there some weird number uh it'll return negative one otherwise it does abs right uh 
the point is, is that all you have to do to test that is put in a property that says that it's an ABS function, right? Well, what do you want it to do? You want the result to be greater than or equal to zero. So you put that property in there and the formal verification system finds this magic number. Uh, I mean, the, the, the fu function is basically like, uh, it's, it's some ridiculous thing where it's like multiplying and dividing and then finally it uses this constant, which is like 522,833,000,000 or something. You know, like it's dividing by that. So it's it's a number you couldn't, it's pretty hard to do in your head. And it, it just discovers this number and says, for this one value, your property will fail. And this isn't done through, Whoa. like it's what people would typically call fuzzing, right? It's not just, it's, no. not, it's not throwing thousands or millions and millions of guesses to try and find this thing. It's doing it, it through like al algebraic manipulation. Is that correct? It, it's doing it by turning the program into a model and then examining the space of all database states and all possible inputs and finding a model. That's the, the, the thing about our system is that it finds a model. It doesn't find every model. It finds you a model that falsifies it. And then it says, here it is. And it gives it to you, and then you can test it. You put it into the function, and now it comes negative one. So if you give it a, it, it will literally go, be able to find like that one number in from zero to int max that would, that would literally fail the entire program. It's worse with Pact because Pact actually supports more than Intmax. <laughs> Pact has well, it has a it's has probably got its own. No, oh. no. I mean, Pact has a, has a, uses the Haskell integer type, which is. Uh, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it's it's machine dependent, but it's 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 way bigger than like a two hundred fifty six bit word. Let's put it that way. Holy but, cow! Yeah. So I mean, it's examining a huge space, and unlike a fuzzer, I mean, fuzzers are great, but you know, if you've ever worked with them, they don't always come back with your bug. You know, they, that's the, that's and, the whole beauty of formal verification is that it's it's mathematically true and it searches the whole space. Right. What I'm curious about is like uh, in, in the existence of like complex smart contracts or multiple smart contracts or whatever you call them in, in Pact or in, in Kadena, um, that search space grows exponentially with like maybe the number of transactions, the number of steps you have to get through to search the entire space. Does that become a computational burden over time? Do you have to just stick to a no, certain it, amount of simplicity? No, and, and the reason why is not through any magic that we're doing. Although Z3, the back end we use, is incredibly fast and is noted as being the, the fastest SMT solver out there and was closed sourced until three years ago. Uh, Microsoft open sourcing was a huge gift to the open source community. That's um, <laughs> but uh, the way the way PAC deals with it is the fact that uh, we, you know, if you want to write something, if you wanted to formally verify your contract that calls some other contract that calls some other contract that calls some other contract, and they're all writing to the database in line, um, and you wanted to verify something that comes out of that long chain of things, then potentially you could get into a proof that would take longer. Mm -hmm. um, but, the, but the way, if you, from a software engineering approach, if you think about it, that's a pretty unsafe way to write a contract. You know, like you'd probably want to write a contract that knows what it's going to be getting, has a pretty good idea what those are going to be, and then wants to verify what it does with the data. So all I'm trying to say is that the same approaches you use for good software engineering anywhere else, modularization, you know, uh, separation of concerns, benefits your formal verification layer by limiting the space of what it has to search. So an, the whole question of like linking to other contracts is, is a very, uh, deep question that PACT has a very principled solution for, um, for ensuring code stability. But one of the things is that since PACT is free text on the blockchain, you know, you can go look at the actual code that executes, including the proofs, 
means you can take those code you can take that those code down and run the proofs on that as well so it, it's really kind of broken up in that regard so that while yes you would be the formal verification system does run through all your linked code mm -hmm. it's always verifying the entire system again turning it and we can only do this because it's turning incomplete most languages do not support linking you know like a million other libraries yeah. but we have to all this stuff in fact is it, you, once you load your code all that stuff is linked in and the formal verification traverses all of that and uh and we have yet to see uh anything take you know the thing to realize about you know complex smart contracts is that they may be complex in terms of their business logic, but chances are they're not that complex in terms of the raw computation that's going on because yeah. it's just too expensive to do that stuff in the blockchain. Yep, and that makes perfect sense. Uh, and it actually, I mean, from from a contract calling contract perspective, because each individual contract is formally verified, you can probably just treat them as isolated functions in and of themselves. Um, I would think it would be very, very difficult to uh, I mean, very, very easy to uh, to just say, hey, this is a known and uh, formally verify as that contract is a known because you could guarantee just because it's in PACT, it's written a certain way and it adheres to certain properties. Um, so, Emily, I, I have a question for you. And by the way, we're getting a little feedback on the mic if somebody's uh, got it. I'm not sure. I'll where. just mute. It might be mine. I'll go to my end. Emily, I, I, I got a question for you. How does formal verification work? Let's just start with that because, like, we're going we're in this glossy user experience to... side of things from a developer's perspective, and that was intentional because I really wanted to tell the story <laughs> first before we got into the nitty gritty details that we really wanted you on the program for. All right, so we have an audience of really highly skilled technical engineers who who really want to learn from you, and um, I, I just from from start from the beginning, square one. How did you how do you build this, and like, what does it take? What parts are involved in this? This is such a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> so give us a course. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Uh, we'll start, I guess we can start with like big theorem provers like Koch uh, and Agda, um, which COQ Koch um, is a sort of uh, theorem prover from the 1980s built on this one version of the Lambda calculus called the calculus of inductive constructions, which is like a fully dependently typed, uh, just beautiful system that can prove basically anything you want that's uh, uh, in the subset of constructive mathematics. Um, and the idea is you start from a language which is sort of the broadest in generality, which, um, which Koch is in this case. And you can write statements that look like mathematical statements using this uh, this like it's it's almost a brand new foundation for mathematics uh you sort of define your universe from the ground up using this core language which can express all the things you want to express in constructive mathematics like universal and existential quantification um like functions uh like how they interact with variables and and so on and you basically build your entire mathematical universe from scratch which is what they've done now, something like Z3, and, and that's that's basically it. <laughs> like, if you can express something mathematically uh, or constructively in terms of uh, constructive mathematics, then you can probably write it in Koch. And that's what people do if they want, like, uh, like Simplicity did this, or um, Tezos did this, actually, with, I think, was it Mickelson? Some of the, one of their Mickelson contract, contracts, I think they modeled entirely in terms of Koch, which is 
you know, mathematically sound, you can running the program is the equivalent of, of uh, you know, verifying that the proof is correct. And if you can model something in this and it, it runs, then you've effectively said a correct statement in constructive mathematics, which is really, really cool. Uh, now, something like SMT solvers, uh, they support certain kinds of theories. So if you want to think about like the what theory... is what does SMT stand for, if I don't mind? Right. So satisfiability modulo theories. So Got basically, it. it looks for uh, like uh, what is the prologue is just sat, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so it's like the next level up from something like prologue. Right. So theories in that that sense mean what theories do the does the theorem prover actually support? And in the case of uh, Z three, I think it's like. Things like real number arithmetic, uh, integer arithmetic, certain kinds of polynomial arithmetic, um, stuff like that. Basically up through, I think, what, first order predicate calculus? So like for all and uh, existential quantifiers in symbolic Boolean calculus. So if you can write a statement that looks like for all X, there exists a Y such that, you know, some predicate, uh, Z3 will be able to uh, take a look at that statement, and if X and, and Y are uh, in the spaces that it can can sort of verify, then it will be able to uh, run around and and look to see if there's a model that satisfies the negation of that theory, which is exactly what what that example that Stuart was talking about with Pact, where it will run around and look for you know not greater than or equal to zero, uh, which is, you know, less than zero, and it will produce uh, a witness to the unsatisfied, sorry, the satisfiability of the negation of the statement that you just made, which it, it turns out to be, you know, for various reasons, algorithmically quicker uh, and less complex to deal with than actually proving uh, the whole class of things that are satisfied by, by the statement. Yeah, no, that makes sense because I mean you don't want to traverse to the entire you know uh, possible search space. You want to find that one case it doesn't. I, I'm surprised there's a method to do that though. To nice. me, that that that's 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 the part that blows my mind, and that's the part I'm really hoping you could get into is because I don't understand how that works. I can understand the brute force part of it. I can even understand more like a more you know uh, careful algorithmic you know selection of data to 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 select down information that can actually find find something that's a candidate for being wrong, but this is not even doing that. It's blowing past all of that and just going straight to the answer. This is where it fails. And it only has to find one negation to prove that your thing is wrong. And it doesn't have to find all of them. It just has to find one. How does it freaking do that? I mean, I want to, I want to give a shot at this to see if the way I currently understand things is, is, is appropriate. I mean, mathematicians have been doing this with, with proofs, like math proofs for, for centuries. Right. And it, it's you constructed algebra that's built up of axiomatic statements. We assume these things to be true. Then you can say, you know, based on that, based on those axioms, these truths, we're going to define these, these constants that live inside these domains. So like X lives between so and so forth, Y lives between so on and so forth, so on and so forth. And then you say, now I'm going to say, because I'm going to say this statement is true. And then mathematicians can work backwards from all the axioms that you build them up and you say, oh, based on what you said was true from the foundation, this can't be right because I've I've built up um, all of these true statements from the core of things that basically equals an inequality. So this thing equals this, and also this thing doesn't equal this at the same time, which means that it's it it just doesn't exist. Well, yeah. that's that's but that's my understanding too. Yeah, computers, computers are doing, are doing it. it. That's the cool part. Faster. 
Well, it's not just about faster. That's not, that's I I the reason why I'm blown away is because what you just said is actually kind of hand wavy. Mathematicians spend their entire lives working on proofs. Sometimes, you know, like this is not like just something that they just pull out of their. There's a a bunch of creative insight. It feels like a lot of times, and yes, it can be reduced down to logic. And once you have the answer, you can abs absolutely prove it. But like a lot of this stuff is very like, yeah. I mean, proofs there's, are not trivial. You know, there's half a century of work in this field. Like since the, I think the sixties, people have been working on this stuff and basically like, how do we translate, uh, you know, implication into uh, an arithmetic statement in a certain kind of Lambda calculus? How do we, uh, you know, translate entire strings of Boolean predicates into computer speak basically. And it all comes down to having a very strong core language, which can actually express a, a you know, subset of mathematics, which is the lambda calculus <laughs> in most cases. Um, so there's, there's kind of a famous theorem uh, sitting in the space called the Curry-Howard isomorphism or the Curry-Howard-Lambeck isomorphism, if you're more recent, which says that there is a, a, a correspondence, a, a sameness, a degree of sameness to the way people talk about logical propositions and the way they talk about programs for specific kinds of calculi on computers. So things like function types correspond really neatly and uh, actually are sort of the same as an implication. You give me an A and you've got a B. Uh, whereas disjunctions correspond really nicely with uh, um, uh, co-products in our like Haskell or something like an either data type. You either have the thing on the left or the thing on the right and you know all the theorems associated with that, or products in the form of tuples. Uh, and, and these statements all sort of translate, you know, really, really nicely into computer speak, and you can build an entire mathematical universe by exploiting this isomorphism and, and results from, you know, logic and results from uh, computer science and, and intermingling the two in order to create this, this verifiable space, which is uh, basically what we're doing this whole time. And actually, you can do this in any language, like uh, JavaScript, if you wanted. Hmm. Well, let me let me let me make this a little more concrete for one moment, though. All right. So, it, to me, it's very easy to understand. I guess the possibility, even though it's still mind blowing, the possibility of finding that one thing that negates a particular thing to disprove a particular function. The the converse of that is that you need to verify that it doesn't have that. You know, and so like let's say I wanted to code up of uh, something that takes a, uh, a map of any kind and will, uh, or, you know, I guess, yeah, let's just call it a map because it's, that's what people commonly understand it as, but it's basically a, a graph with regions. Um, and we want to determine whether or not you can uh, use four colors to color this map. Okay. You need to only find now the four color theorem is proven. Like it was proven in the mid two thousands. But it took all the way that that long for mathematicians and economists to what was actually an economist had his hand in that um, to prove the four color theorem. Um, so, what would that? What? How would a formally verified language look at that? And how would they know whether? Yeah, I mean that is always true based on the algorithm you give in that it actually satisfies a four color four color mapping. Does that make sense? I, the one thing I just jump in to say is that that does fall into the realm of, you know, classic like NP complete problems and things like that. And 
there's any number of things you might do with a computer where you'd employ dynamic programming or you'd employ machine learning or you'd employ you know, any number of complex algorithmic techniques and being able to prove properties, you know, to take the next step and prove properties of whatever nifty approach, like, so for instance, dynamic programming is, you know, is very nifty. I mean, it, 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 it manages to take a, you know, to shrink a search space tremendously, but it's an optimization, right? It's not the raw problem is both simpler and harder so if you wanted to admit that to formal verification, you'd have to decide, are you talking about the raw problem itself? Because that might be quite easy to express and say some things about. Or are you talking about a specific solution that will get the job done for you with certain asymptotics? That gets quite complex and you might have a hard time, uh, you know, I mean, I, formal verification could certainly aid you there, but you know, I, I think you'd have a hard time uh, talking about that in general because necessarily your concerns are going to be, a, you know, and there are even things where, you know, people are obviously proving things about algorithms, but, um, you know, that's just a space of computer engineering that has its own concerns and formal verification is more about the techniques. You know, the formality is more about the techniques you do to kind of shrink your search space and less about the, does that make sense? Then the problem you're trying to solve, which might be both more elegant and more intractable. So it's just trying to prove that whatever you're doing will not produce a wrong-ish result. So if you put a tolerant, you know, acceptance in there, like, oh, we can have one that's ordered or whatever, and that would be, uh, that's two colors that are boarding each other, but we can't have more than that. Like, would that be something? Like, I don't understand quite. The way, I, the way I've understood it in terms of how other other tooling works that, that offers quote-unquote formal verification is that you give it a list of, of invariants. And the more invariants you give it, the better it is to reason about whether or not those things are ever broken based on what you wrote. So you say, like, this thing will always hold true. This thing will always hold untrue. There's no scenario where this thing should ever equal this thing. And the more that list of invariants you give it, the easier it is formal verification to say, yep, all that all that is withheld within the the confines of the thing that you built. Is that a decent way of kind of explaining what the whole goal is here? I think one thing that makes this conversation that threatens to make this conversation overly abstract is that, <laughs> you know, like as Emily was saying, this work has been going on in, I mean, there's been tremendous work in this space. Um, you know, the, the work on formal verification has never really stopped, but when you're in computer science, the problem in engineering, the problem is that computer engineering has not advanced nearly as far, you know, in terms of like formal things. It's like we've advanced in terms of like raw computing power. We've advanced in terms of lots of things, but in terms of as programmers, there hasn't been a ton of like amazing innovation since the sixties or the seventies. You know, a lot of the programming languages we use are very similar to C or Lisp or these things that came out a long time ago. And the reason why I say that is not just not to, is, is to say that one of the things that's weird is that, uh, you know, kind of programmers whose day job it is to solve problems with a computer for normal human beings, a lot of them don't have access to formal verification as a tool. And that's one of the things that we really wanted to do with PACT is try to make it that the, you know, the programmer who doesn't understand all these things that we're talking about um, can still say something like, well, gosh, I know that this thing, I know that my balance column can never go below zero. 
I just know that. And if you can give me a way to express that and it can show me it and it can show me where I'm wrong and I can trust in that system, then that becomes very useful. And that's a very unusual thing. Like I've never seen it ever in anything I've done in 25 years of software engineering. I've never like, for instance, packed a similar database program. No one ever offered me something for when I write my like database program. <laughs> I would say like, oh, also we'll find all your bugs for you. Like nobody <laughs> ever offered that tool. If anything, and, everyone always bitches on how terrible error messages are. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, and then and then the the practice is unit testing, of course. But unit testing is, of course, the programmer trying to think of every error case they can think of, and then the next best thing is static analysis and fuzzing, and those are all really good things to do, of course. And those might find you things, but those still require you to think of how you want to model the domain of your program. And what's so nice about this thing is that for once, we can talk in an abstract way, and by abstract, I mean general, about the entire space of what the program is trying to do, and then actually leverage a computer to help. What I say to people sometimes is that Non-programmers may not realize how primitive the tools programmers work with are, because computers look like magic to non-programmers. So, but also non-programmers probably think, oh, well, don't you just use the computer to help you find, <laughs> and it's like, no, we don't. We do everything by hand. We write all our tests by hand. And that's one of the things that like is, I mean, is, you know, just from a conceptual point of view, is so exciting about what's going on with PACT is the idea that like, well, now you can. Now you can actually use some of these tools and maybe one day these things that were that you know that Colin and Emily are are hashing out here will become more common knowledge to uh, the workaday programmer because they'll be so much more familiar with using the tools. Like programmers are much more familiar with the intricacies of TCP/IP, which is complicated. But if your if your job is writing server applications or full stack stuff, one of these years you're going to need to know something about TCP IP. So you're probably going to do a deep dive on that. So hopefully formal verification will be like that someday. Oh man, do I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I don't see why I can't just have a, every language can't have a little subset of formal verification. This function is formally verified, you know, put it in a decorator and just stick it over the function. And then it behaves a certain way. And then this little subset of, of calculation would be always uh, formally verified. I mean, like, that just seems like an easy language feature that, that particular language designers could probably implement. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, easy is, is the wrong word. Yeah. Straightforward, I don't know. No, that's the, the problem. Was there. The problem is admitting your language to formal verification. And this is, I think it's worth actually, I think, you know, and in the interest of time, we might want to uh, gloss over some of the things that are happening in Solidity land and in EVM land, which Emily can talk about, about because that is much closer to the model of a JavaScript or a Java or something like that. And what you would actually, because that's what they're attempting to do. So, yeah. I mean, maybe Emily, you can give us a... And by the way, I want to apologize. I didn't mean to be reductionist when I said easy. I know it's very, very difficult, but I feel like if we had engineered ourselves in that direction, there could be a standard set of tools that people be more familiar with. Um, sure. No, and I, then they I agree with you. I, I think, you know, that's the whole von Neumann debate, you know, that like yeah. our entire our entire machines are built wrong, that we built everything around this like Turing tar pit. And mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, trying to build machines that are actually more predictable. Uh, well, Average. just more predictable. I think people 
I mean, if you've read that paper on functional programming from the late 70s, I forgot if it's von Neumann. I John, who Bacchus. John Bacchus, John yeah, Bacchus, yeah. 1977, I think. Right. And that one, you know, he really like makes this case that like you're doing it wrong. Like, like nobody listened to him, you know, worse is better. That's that's where we're at now. And it's and, you know, it would it would be great if we could move into this better realm. But we do have things like the EVM and people want to prove things about them. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of what. um what's going on with the uh, K framework or solidity star work. Mm -hmm. um, the solidity star, uh, as you know, the, the EVM bytecode is, is Turing complete uh, and they want to provide some form of verification to the uh, languages built on, on the EVM in this case, solidity. Uh, and they found that they actually can't verify the entirety of the bytecode. They have to defer just to the Turing incomplete subset of EVM bytecode and identify that with a sublanguage of solidity, which is the Turing incomplete sublanguage. And in order to prove that solidity actually produces the bytecode uh, both ways, so like the bytecode produces the same solidity script as the solidity script produces in terms of bytecode, they have to restrict themselves to this sublanguage of each of the, the languages. And then they can form the the proofs for verification which show that the, the two actually do produce each other. Is that what people typically refer to as an uh, intermediate language, intermediate yes. representation? Uh, yes, yes, kind of. Um, in in an intermediate language, uh, you think of like a, a sort of undecorating or squishing the language to fewer um, sort of intermediate constructors so that you, you can do the same stuff that you want to do in a slightly more principled way, sort of like in a lowered version of the mm -hmm. language. In this case, uh, you just have to make sure that your program is in that subset of solidity or in that subset of the EVM bytecode, which they can actually address. Uh, so it's not quite an intermediate representation. It's more just like uh, a convention of you, you can't verify anything unless you are in this subset. Okay. Right. Uh, yeah, a lot of times uh, lowered representations are actually less safe, and you're usually taking the safety properties of the higher level language, proving things, and then saying, because of this, I can emit faster, more unsafe languages like LLVM or, you know, machine language. So that, that's the usual kind of like, an IR is usually a less, slightly less principled, slightly less safe, but simpler and easier for a machine to chew through. Whereas here, what we're talking about is kind of a principled subset that is basically trying to it, it's basically trying to wrangle a language into something that we can reason about when the language wasn't designed that way in the first place. Yeah. And we actually go over a lot of this in the, uh, the EVM is fundamentally unsafe blog post that we, we put out over the summer, which, uh, or oh, sorry, was it summer? No, it was fall back in the fall. And yeah, I mean, this, yeah. <laughs> I'll be sure to include uh, that in the post and the show notes. A lot of the, the Solidity stuff is trying to get towards uh, a space where they can say something meaningful about their programs, but finding that they've coded a language which is too broad and too uh, basically unsafe to admit a formal specification, uh, which is a meaningful specification, right? And K-Framework kind of does this as well. Um, actually, we... I, I know a few people that are working on K-Framework, like Martin Lundfall, who's done mm -hmm. incredible work um, on, I think, the 
what is it, the reachability proofs in that area. I think he presented it at SBC, if I remember correctly. But they're, they're identifying from an operational semantic, uh, basically a specification of how programs should work, uh, trying to use K-Framework to verify that programs actually do what they say they're supposed to do, much in the same way that PAC does, except they're working in Turing incomplete, or sorry, complete land. And it's very, very difficult to uh, verify that programs do what they say they're going to do in that, in that situation, such that it takes minutes to verify simple arithmetic, which is a consequence of the structure of the language itself. So we take the view that you're, because, of, uh, because of gas and because you, know, you have a limited stack and limited data, like Colin was saying earlier in the show, uh, you, you're actually not using any of the properties of Turing, or sorry, Turing completeness that you think you are in your language, yeah. but you are admitting all of the flaws and non-verifiability of Turing complete languages into your language, <laughs> such that you find yourself in a situation where you have a bajillion formal verification engines, which are sort of slow, very interesting concepts, but slow and not terribly usable. Whereas Pact can do the same thing in microseconds. Yeah, I would, I would assume that the decision to make, to model things after JavaScript and create a language like Solidity was not necessarily a computational one. It was more of a social one in terms of trying yeah. to attract developers to start building on the system, which has its own, which has its own benefits and consequences. But in hindsight, right. um, based on how we're seeing this technology grow and be used and what it could be used for, that may, that may have not been a good decision. Yeah. And you can see that, that kind of manifesting, uh, in the way that people are looking at different language models to use, such as Viper, which is uh, Python based, which by the way, is a beautiful language. Um, you know, um, so, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I think, uh, I, I really want to get to one more question and we really want to go over chain web. Okay. Um, but I, I do have one question at this point and Corey might have another, but, um, what is the performance hit for doing form of verification in deploying a contract from a, from a, integration I'm going to yeah, like, cut you off because okay. there's none because we don't formally verify on the blockchain. Formal verification is optional. I meant in a CI/CD way. Um, so, like, if I'm oh, rapidly oh, I, developing and I and I, I want to, I want to deploy new code. How long does it take for me to know that this code's correct? It's it's basically you're continually doing it. So, Pact uses these things called REPL files, which are basically test scripts. And the idea is you just call a function called verify in your module, and it's constantly verifying. So, uh, Pact. This is Pact's development models. You basically start right Pact. In other words, in Pact, you can do what's called test-driven development. Um, what where you're that? running, yeah, I know, <laughs> get out of my block. Not descriptive. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then you can also do kind of formally driven development where you could write your properties first, have those tests fail and then implement the code if you wanted to. Um, it's also, you know, the, the language is really quite rich and we'd be happy to send you kind of the introductory piece on it. Um, the, the property language that's inside of, that's embedded inside of Pact. But the idea there is that um, most of what we want to do, when you think of the bugs that have been afflicting Solidity, they're not rocket science bugs. They're exploits on, on code that's supposed to be simple and isn't. You know, like an ERC-20 bug is not a rocket science bug. It's somebody who is able to figure out that something that they did uh, admitted some kind of recursion loop or something like that. Since those things are unavailable to you by construction in PACT, 
the properties you write are there, therefore going to be, uh, you know, that much simpler. So the, uh, the, the place where you could get in trouble in PACT if you wanted, if it was going to spin out of control is if you were, for instance, like you decided you wanted to parse long strings of text in your smart contract language. And I would say you're an idiot just on the face of it if you want to do that. <laughs> but you know, people do, programmers do whatever they're going to do. And then they're going to be like, wait a minute, the formal verification system is taking forever to like go through the entire universe of really long strings. That will happen. You will have, you know, so there are things that I, my assertion is that the kinds of things you want to do on the blockchain happen to be really easy to verify. Like, you know, usually it's ledger activities. Those things are, there's just not a million things you need to verify or predicate logic to saying i want to make sure that you know this person that we're always checking that this person signed this transaction if we're going to do this operation on the database always it can do it in its sleep it's just simple predicate logic done before you can even mention it man so i, I part of this i'm kind of curious you mentioned the the way pact is used and 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 what it's capable of doing relative to other programming languages. Is this something you're hoping is going to take off outside of the blockchain world? We talked about it a lot because it's so useful for database applications in the mm -hmm. sense that Pact, if you wanted to write a really principled backend for your JavaScript application, you could download Pact today, which has got a SQLite engine in it. Run Pact-S, which is our web REST server, giving you the, our blockchain API, and write a JavaScript application. This is what our demo apps do. Um, and it's a really, it's packed as fast, you know, it, it does somewhere in the order of 10 to 20,000 database operations a second. SQLite is great. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's great. Yeah, it's amazing. So like you get this great principled language, you can prove things about it. And in truth, most web apps aren't doing anything that complicated. I mean, you know, remember, we're not talking about like Google maps. We're talking about like, you know, a storefront or a shopping cart or whatever you might be doing you know, a, a task tracker, a, a scheduler, just something that like, you know, like a scheduler is a good example. You might have something, you might have some great dynamic programming thing that solves your scheduling problem. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure it's stored right. And you want to make sure it does all the right things with that data and doesn't let somebody write the wrong thing. You could use PAC to do all that. And it, I think it would be a terrific solution. Um, so, but that's, you know, that's, uh, I think, Blockchain is a very, it, it doesn't seem like it, but I actually think it's a very satisfying space to work in, in terms of building gaps, because I actually think it's a, it's a nicely constrained space and it's exactly the space pact is designed for. I think some of the concepts in blockchain need to make their way out into the larger programming community, namely the, the ubiquitous use of public key cryptography to, to safeguard systems is just better security then most, you know, forget, stop logging into your application, start using a ledger wallet or whatever. Use a hardware wallet, use a, you know, use a YubiKey. That is going to be, that's the way of the future is stateless authentication through public keys and PACT is there for you. It's ready to do all that. But I don't think programmers are there yet. They're, they still want to log into their database. They still want their insecure logins because that's what users are used to, you know, this stuff isn't, as everybody knows, wallets are very unergonomic. So right now, so those things get solved. And I, I foresee us moving into a, 
a world of safer user applications that don't necessarily run on a blockchain, at which point Pact is, uh, you know, is purpose built for that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think we're all aligned with that vision, especially our listeners on this show. I mean, we've 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 seen the benefits, and we're, we're we see where it's going. It might not be there yet. The user experience might be a huge barrier to adoption, but um, we see the benefits already. So I, I think that's great. Uh, but one other thing that people have a problem with is the fact that they can't have certain scalability guarantees. So I was wondering if, as as the lamest segue, I'm sure, but. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about ChainWeb? Um, we had you on the program before to talk about it. Um, it's part of the Cadena uh, 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 platform uh, as, well, as well as Pact. I don't know if I should call it a platform or not. I don't know what the right term for it we is. Call it, we call it a hybrid blockchain platform because we, we talk about solutions that can live on private chain and public chain and go back and forth. And that's ideal in my mind. That's what I kind of hoped Plasma would have been. Um, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, that was probably one of the most, uh, interesting conversations, um, you had, you were one of the very early guests in the program. I think it might've been like episode five or something. Um, and, um, you know, the reason is, is cause I watched the videos on SBC last year and Will's talk, uh, popped out at me, um, immediately as I was like, we need to book these guys because ChainWeb was just freaking cool from its not just its graphics you got some pretty cool uh (laughs) graphics i think i still got your t-shirt and i wear it every once in a while um but uh it's it's a cool t-shirt it looks freaking rad it looks like ah i love it it looks like some sort of slice out of like a a time sci-fi movie you know about time travel anyway um but uh the uh the thing about cadena that i that i i love is just your approach to scalability is a baked in and b extensible and c kind of novel and that it still relies on proof of work but a, a scaled scaled down version of it um i think it would be best considering time constraints that we uh, just referenced the other other episode if we want to get into the nitty-gritty details about chain web but instead let's just uh, uh take up that conversation from where where we left off before um, and tell us what's been going on with the chain web ecosystem, who's using it and what innovations have you made and Hey, what problems have you found in developing it? Cause I guarantee you there were some in the past oh, yeah. year that you've had to like oh, yeah. adjust to. <laughs> so, you know, what's the development like been on that and what's design design going and have there been any changes since we last talked? Uh, yeah, great. Um, I mean that you said who's using it. I mean, just to touch briefly on that, I'm the, the most receptive audience is people who basically want to leverage crypto as a space for launching financial products or for representing uh, new types of assets, but want to do it in a safe way and don't want to be hampered by scalability concerns and, and want to have tight controls around things like, you know, KYC, you know, your client and have a, have a, have a smooth gateway onto a private system because so much stuff shouldn't really be on a public blockchain when you're, you know, like, uh, but it, it all comes down to scalability in the end because, you know, every every program that runs on that is based on with Bitcoin as back end or with, you know, now with Ethereum with this back end is basically a ticking time bomb of, you know, your program getting popular enough to be like CryptoKitties and then the whole thing slows down. So, um, yeah, so ChainWeb's design has not changed. And in fact, we just our paper got accepted uh, for I forgot the name of the conference. Um, that proves uh, chain web security properties in terms of the ability for a malicious miner to be able to censor users. Chain web is intuitively correct in terms of how it checks um, hashes, but 
the thing that we wanted to see was would it be possible for attackers to meaningfully attack the liveness of the system to you know to create things like censorship and some of these things that we've seen um algorand and some of the other um you know interesting research into kind of blockchains in general and their security properties beyond just something like double spend but two things like censorship that uh chainweb offers an incredibly resilient solution for so that that's that paper is coming out shortly we're very excited about that um but uh the other the one of the main interesting things that's coming up now well i mean the big news to share is of course that we launched our test net uh, at the end of march which was a big accomplishment and and a really great shot in the arm for the team uh we said public test net or is it just a closed uh, test net? right now it's a closed test net uh the next version is coming out at the end of may and that uh is going to be uh invite uh, participation by invite. And then after that, it's going to be full public. Uh, so these are coming out in like an every two month clip. Uh, I won't tell you, we're going to make a big announcement of our live date, but it's it's not, it's it, we're not going to do a million of these. Let's put it that way. There's a finite number of test nets that's going to happen and then we're going to go into production. Um, and uh, one of the most interesting things about that is that, uh, and something uh, Emily and I have worked particularly hard on is, um, that the uh, coin logic inside of Chainweb is actually handled by a packed smart contract. Um, so this means that all gas transactions, um, all coin rewards, and then all transfers between users happen in a packed smart contract that is formally verified. Um, now that's nifty, of course, from a dog pooting point of view. And it also means that we won't have some of the ergonomic issues that Ethereum encountered between ERC20 and the, and the Ethereum token itself in the sense that everything can use the same interface. Um, but also it uh, revealed that one of the things that always part was part of Chainweb was the, the fact that we needed to burn coins on one chain in order for them to show up on another chain. We mm -hmm. needed a way to move coins around. And we always knew that we were going to use simple payment verification, you know, Merkle proofs, where a chain can find the Merkle proof, the image of the, uh, of the Merkle hash from the other chain. And that way you can have trustless verification that a coin was indeed burnt on the other chain. And now you can create it on this chain and the system conserves mass. You can't have a double spend and so on and so forth, so forth. What emerged was that the very technique that we use to do that in the coin contract is, is an automatic two-step transaction that will be available to every smart contract developer. So every ERC-20 will be able to do this. Any asset that lives on ChainWeb will be easy. And it, in fact, it'll be entirely automatic for you to burn an asset on one chain and move it over to the other chain. We always knew that this was gonna be possible. We didn't realize it was gonna be this easy. It's, it's almost it's, primitive. It's, it is a primitive. It's actually, it isn't, that's coming out in V1. It, PACT has these um, things called PACs, which are multi-step. So we have functions and then we have PACs and PACs are multi-step functions. And it, it emerged that the shape of the multi-step function was the natural shape for a two-step transaction across chains and allowed it to be automated so that now you can have a trustless exchange from one exchange to the other. It's as simple as writing one of these functions. And you can even do formal verification proofs about the state that emerges on either side. Now, so I actually kind of have a question about that. How is that managed? Because I, from my recollection of how you map um, map your chains out not every map not every chain is connected to every other chain 
So how do you map? All Eventually the way they across? are. Eventually. Oh, really? Yes. I thought that was uh, a that's a very important here. property of ChainWeb is that uh, it uses an expander graph that has uh, a property called a diameter, which is a maximum shortest path to any other chain. And it's a very important, that's actually what the t-shirt shows, right? Yeah. Is as you get out to the edge, uh, the transaction that's in the middle, you know, one, you're, it is traveling through time. So in the past, the, you know, the, the confirmation depth, if, if you want to see it as that, is when your transaction has been imaged into every other hash in the entire network. And, you know, and, and the part going forward is how long it will take you for your transaction to show up in, in every other one. And that's very important because it means that, uh, it does mean that like, if you want to move assets from one chain, uh, it will take that much longer for that second transaction to be possible because it, that chain won't have seen your transaction. If it's not right next to it, it won't have seen that transaction yeah. like, for that many like, try and make uh, like video game references to, to, to things like this, because I think a lot of people have some intuition into that, especially based on the subset of people who are in the space, is that um, like that just because that may be the case where it takes longer to move from one chain to the other doesn't mean it's, it's, it's a bad thing. You could think of it in terms of like uh, yeah, migrating your, your, your video game character from one realm to another and in, in some in a multi massive multiplayer online game, right? You don't do that all the time, but you can. And right. it's useful in some cases. And so like the fact that you're able to do that as a primitive and you can verify that your character will show up with all the things it had previously is a very good thing to know. Right, that it's safe and that it actually works. I mean, that's the, I think, and interestingly enough, um, in SPC, Vitalik spoke and he talked about Ethereum 2.0 and how they're going to move resources around their sharded network. And it turns out they're going to use a very similar yeah. approach. Um, I mean, the difference is, is that we issued testnet of this like a month ago, and God knows when they're going to get that out. Um, this already works, and we already have the mechanisms in place to do this. Well, they're using uh, a new consensus algorithm as well, so it's kind of like they've got a lot to test and go through. So yeah, no, just, just for our audience, in case they haven't heard the previous episode, you're scaling proof of work. Like, yeah, that's and that, literally and what you're doing. You're actually able to scale proof of work. Um, and so maybe a quick synopsis of that would be would be uh, essential. But I do believe that going through the previous episode, which is a deep dive, would be beneficial to anybody listening to this. Yeah, it, it's a simple concept. It basically says that if a blockchain, a Bitcoin-style blockchain, uh, derives its security from incorporating the hash of, the of a block incorporating the hash that came before it, uh, Bit, uh, Chainweb uses an idea that's been around for quite a while, uh, but Chainweb is the first deployment that we know of that actually does this and certainly does it at the massive scale that we do it. Chainweb says that you can incorporate hashes from other uh, blockchains that are that are producing blocks you know, in the same network. And the main uh, innovation there is to is to apply the graph theory and say that we can conceive of networks that are basically these expander graphs that bound how long a chain is separated from any other chain in the network, which ends up being a very important security property as okay. well. You don't... That's the main thing that I think you offer here is, is that connectivity graph. Right. And that's, so that's basically what ChainWeb is. And, but what you get for it is you get every single chain that's in the system is running independently. And that's a very good thing because that's where the throughput comes from. So we're not going to be orders of magnitude faster on a given chain than Ethereum today or Bitcoin. It's the fact that we can run 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000 of these things, and we're really only constrained by bandwidth. That's been an exciting thing to see, too, 
is that um, is that the network itself doesn't chew up a lot of CPU to compute consensus over the entire, you know, because there is some consensus work that has to happen, which is that, you know, there can be different forks on a given chain, there could be different forks happening in different parts of the network. So, and there can be different kind of combinations of forks that are happening, something that we call a cut, which is basically the wave front of all the blocks that are being produced. The essential property of chain web that's so important, that diameter is, is so important because it bounds how far out of sync you can get. And it makes it that that problem never really spins out of control. And, but that at the same time, it's the property that makes it impossible to censor someone else. So it's a very, I think the thing that's very satisfying about ChainWeb and it's been very satisfying about doing the engineering is, uh, and I don't take credit for this, by the way, we've, the people working on this on our team are some very advanced people. Um, uh, and it's really been amazing to see see this thing actually come to life. Um, is that the, the principles haven't changed. Uh, the, you know, the engineering is, has had to happen, but it's, it's leveraged these ideas and been able to come up with a practical approach to consensus that doesn't bog down either in simulation or in testnet. In testnet, we got to, our first milestone was getting to 100,000 blocks. That was 10,000 blocks in each chain. And, and having it, you know, fork, things, get, things do get out of whack momentarily, and then they come back into consensus. And then in that sense, it's no different than like the occasional appearance of a fork in Bitcoin or Ethereum. So have you done stress testing on this to, to see what kind of ridiculous throughput you can get on this? That's, that's what we're moving to right now. Um, you know, we have some uh, low-hanging fruit of things that we have to address, such as uh, we, you know, uh, the initial one was a memory-based system, so we're, we're just starting to roll out the disk-based system now, so that obviously a memory-based system is going to run out of resources shortly. Um, that we we're able to stress test in terms of like running at very fast mining rates and things like that, um, and we we're happy with what we saw there. Um, so, you know, the next thing is also like really cramming blocks full and seeing what kinds of, uh, you know, what the transaction load looks like and what that, you know, the work required there. Um, another nice thing is that unlike Ethereum, we don't uh, transmit the actual results of each transaction or the underlying database. So the bandwidth usage is much smaller. And eventually we'll be able to do things like checkpoint the application database so that as opposed to having to download, like what does Ethereum have to download today? It's, it's depends on what kind of mod, load or <laughs> depends on what kind of node you're using, but it can get up there. Yeah, like a big full node, I think, is in terabytes now. Like, I think an archive node is just around a terabyte. Yeah, but that's no so, one. No one runs them. It's like yeah, five of them. Runs them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I mean, that's something that we will. You know, this is not something we're going to do for mainnet, but um, but shortly after mainnet, we'll start introducing ways that you can start up with a smaller image, simply because you know the engineer packed as a separate layer manages its data and then just introduces hashes back into the system to verify the contents. So. Uh, yeah, so like how far back does somebody need to verify on exactly. a particular shard to know that the whole system's correct? Like if you're only maintaining one, I don't know, I don't want to call it a shard, um, although it kind of is, um, a particular chain. An shard is an imprecise term. Anyway. Yeah, it really is. Um, a particular chain um, uh, uh, on the chain web, like you don't have to maintain the full state of that chain, the full history of that chain. You only need to retain a certain unless you piece wanted of that, correct? Unless you want to be a super proof of work maximalist, because yeah. I mean, the, 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 there will be those people and they fulfill the, that purpose. Right. Because the thing about free exactly. proof of work is proof of work is the only system that you could go off. You could have a network partition for a year and recover. 
it's the only system in history that could do that. So a maximalist is going to be like, you have to maintain rollback capability till Genesis block. But in practicality, that would be an economic disaster, right? I mean, if, if Bitcoin yeah. admitted a hard fork that was a year old, everyone would rage quit. I mean, yeah. it's just, <laughs> Absolutely. That's, yeah. So, I mean, pra so, you know, so practically that's not true. Um, so, but it's, it's just interesting because a lot of these, it's basically by having kind of solid engineering practices, like a decoupled design, in other words, consensus doesn't care about payloads. Consensus just cares about these mark lashes coming through and mining and making sure that they all agree on their ancestors. Pact runs as a service that leverages that and that produces, you know, a list of Merkle hashes that form the block hash, but the system isn't architected around that. So um, it would be possible, for instance, to have these kind of light nodes. Yeah, that's that... what I was visioning there, because like you don't because your your consensus is dependent on other um, other uh, uh, chains in the network. You don't have to look as far back to get a higher degree of confidence that no. the transaction on your current chain is correct because the whole network is going to scream at you if that one, if somebody does something wrong on your system or if you're submitting something that doesn't match up. It's just like infeasible to even think that maybe even 200 state changes would, would be more than that would even be required for for the system. Like you, you're going to know. You're going to know off the top if it's yeah, correct. And most forks are local too. So in that sense, they get handled by the chain that's there. It's not like the whole system is forking that yeah. much. Or even, or a, a more accurate way to say that is that a fork at the cut level doesn't mean that every single chain is out of sync. It means that a few chains are out of sync. You know, there's there's a there's a probable probability that all could go out of sync, but that doesn't matter, and it's also very unlikely. So the so system, ninety five, just like Bitcoin, you know, which isn't forking all the time, the system ninety five percent of the time is a well-behaved system and because of the security you can consider a much lower confirmation depth so to get back a little bit to pact if we're having cross-chain communication um with with uh with pact uh, is formal verification built into that um and what kind of if so is like there are special challenges around that especially given the fact that things can fork uh no because the the uh the great thing about Chainweb being a trustless because remember, one of the things about light clients and simple payment verification is that there's a trust problem, normally. Chainweb doesn't have this problem. Chainweb has a 100% reliable uh, oracle of, the, of whatever is happening on this other chain for that cut fork. So in other words, the same reasons why mass conservation works with forks in Bitcoin is why cross-chain stuff works on Chainweb. In other words, you you deleted the coin. If that gets forked, well, guess what? You're never going to be able to create the other one because the fork will go away. If you deleted the coin and you created the coin and that whole thing gets forked, well, then they all go away. If just the create goes away, fine, you have to send in another create. And, you know, in transaction reintroduction, you know, this is something I've had to learn about is the whole, you know, like the 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 ways that mempools reintroduce transactions safely. Mm -hmm. You know, the Satoshi paper just glosses over this whole yeah. thing. Like, ah, mempool can throw things out. But come on, that's not that's a terrible user experience. So this whole idea that after a fork, you'll have to send your transaction and nobody does that. That happens automatically. So as a result, these things all behave. They're all very well behaved with respect to forks. And uh, like many other things that if we had more time to talk about formal verification 
and some of the things Emily could dive back into is one of the things about PACT is that it's a very well-specified system with very tight boundaries. So there, that represents the, the, the cross-chain burn create is verifiable by having an axiom that says that this can't produce two states, right? That, mm -hmm. that in other words, that, that uh, create can't happen twice. That's what I was going to kind of circle it back to is the fact that because you have a language like PACT that has things that are form of verifiable, you have a lot more security guarantees on moving things across from state to state because they're both operating on the same foundational language and guarantees. Right, right. Right. And, you know, and like if if uh, if we were to when Emily talks about, you know, that there's different levels of form of verification, uh, you know, like we're going to we're going to be doing an AMA with a Certic soon who have done stuff involving trying to like formally verify an entire operating system or an entire network. I mean, it gets very deep if you want to actually get to the level of saying, so we're going to layer things on top of each other instead. We're going to say, we've proven that Chainway was safe and that it, it that censorship is not possible. We will base pact on a set of principles that we demand that the runtime guarantee, and then we will do formal verification on top of that. So, Emily, we got to yes. wrap up here, but I have one more kind of like thing. I feel, I feel like a good way to close this out. You just got into the space, what, eight months ago, you said? Yeah, um, ish. What has the thing, so this has kind of like been your domain for a while. What specific challenges have there been in, uh, in developing on PACT and in PACT and for PACT and building PACT? Um, that kind of threw you off and you didn't really have to face them in other spaces. And if there's anything else that maybe we should have covered that we didn't, you know, uh, please feel free to also say that as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, I suppose it's the, the way that PACT is constructed. Um, normally when you think of a language, you think of a compiled language, uh, but PACT happens to be interpreted and interpreted in an interpreter that we've written in Haskell, which is a compiled language. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a strange uh, shift in mentality that your concerns have to be, uh, how do I represent my language in terms of uh, not just what I want for a feature uh, or a feature set, which is the packed language, but also how do I express this in Haskell, the language that we wrote this in? Uh, and then how do we handle concerns like runtime typing? Uh, how do we handle concerns like, um, I guess, how do we even express uh, formal verification for this language in terms of this other language that it sits on top of, uh, which has been totally contrary to most of the, the things that I've done, which have been very much compiled, um, I guess, languages that have a a denotational semantic, uh, a mathematical semantic. Um, and it's just been a fun experience. Like, that's that's basically it. <laughs> it's just wrapping your head around, um, not just like the language itself, but but the feature set that, that we offer being not just a programming language, but a, but a very opinionated programming language about the things that you should be able to do. Uh, it, it poses a certain set of challenges, which are uh, really unfamiliar to someone who believes that you should be able to do anything in a programming language. Um, but yeah, it, it's turned out great. Yeah, I, I'm really excited by Kadona. I think I can't wait to see the live testnet. Um, uh, 
Stuart, are there any uh, last minute um, announcements you'd like to make uh, before we wrap this up? Uh, well, one thing I wanted to point out is that on the Turing uh, Complete versus Incomplete, we have an interesting uh, post on our medium that was written by a non-technical person here at Cadena. And that's just interesting to see somebody grapple with these concepts and why they might you know, be of interest to somebody who isn't necessarily a programmer. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we covered a lot of the really exciting stuff that's going on here. Um, you know, I, I, got, I got through some of the upcoming highlights of our you know, March to mainnet and our kind of steady cadence of testnet things. Um, we're super, I mean, it's, it's a really exciting time around here. Um, the other thing is that we did, uh, you know, just to kind of give a quick shout out to what we've been doing in the private world is that we did uh, roll out a cloud-based solution on Amazon in January with our private blockchain. And that's, that's just something that increasingly, you know, the world is going to be one where there's private blockchains and public blockchains. And you can, you can use all the tools we talked about in PACT on a private blockchain as well. So that's something that and there's even some features there that aren't on chain web, like the ability to have confidential transactions that where that other people can't see um, with their own computational models associated with it and things like that. So um, it's just been really exciting here and also working closely with our clients. We have some very exciting announcements coming out about these new financial products that are going to be launched on Cadena on the on chain web. So um, it's just, I would just encourage everybody to stay tuned because there's a bunch of exciting stuff that's going to be coming your way very shortly. Okay. Where do they go to, where do they go to stay tuned? Uh, Cadena.io. We have also have a discard channel. Uh, we also have a newsletter you can sign up for there. Uh, you know, we've been, uh, we've actually, I've been uh, stirring up some, stirring up some conversations on Twitter. There's, you know, so we're, we're finally starting to get our, get our message out. But please come join our Discord channel. There's a lot of really interesting conversations happening there. Yeah. And I'm on there all the time. So if you want to ask any questions about uh, formal verification more in-depth, where I can actually write this stuff out, uh, I'd be happy to. <laughs> or point you oh, into yeah, resources. This is, this is a difficult platform. Stuff. Yeah, this is a difficult platform for in-depth. I mean, we do try and deep dive as much as possible, but we have a limited set of time, and we are already over. And that's... Uh, that's because there's so much interesting work going on at Cadena. Uh, so I'm really, really excited to have you guys back on. And uh, we will definitely reach out to you to have you back on again in the future if you're interested. So. Perfect. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks.